0: All right, well, we're kicking off a new series today, as you guessed it, in the book of Daniel. And uh, we're going to be really focusing on the first six chapters of Daniel, kind of the narrative portion portion of his story. Daniel kind of breaks up into a couple of uh, different sections. You've got the narrative of Daniel and his friends in the first six chapters, and then starting about chapter seven through the rest of the book, it turns to more um, his uh, dreams and visions and prophecies and things of that nature. And so we're really going to be focusing on the story um, of Daniel and his friends, and uh, we're calling this series in Daniel unshakable, and, um, and that's really what you see a picture of um, in these first six chapters of Daniel is some guys who have just unshakable faith in the midst of very turbulent, very turbulent times. Um, In the book of Daniel, Daniel and his friends find themselves as aliens and strangers in a brand new place uh, that they had never been called Babylon. And no longer were they at home with God's people in Jerusalem. As Jerusalem is besieged, we're going to see here in chapter one, and they're abducted and taken to Babylon in exile and An idolatrous place Babylon was with an idolatrous evil king named Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, of all the um, Gentile kind of evil kings that are spoken of um, in the Bible, um, really him and Nebuchadnezzar, him and Pharaoh in Egypt are the two that are spoken of the most. Pharaoh uh, over in Genesis and Exodus there, excuse me, Exodus there, um, is probably the only um, uh, foreign leader that is spoken of more than Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament. And so he's a very um, uh, well known figure as he's spoken of in other books besides the book of Daniel. And so their lives are completely upended due to this exile, shook to the core, and they begin to face pressure in Babylon to assimilate into a new and ungodly culture, to begin to worship false gods, to leave behind their very identity as God's people. And kind of what we see from them in in the Old Testament here is a picture of kind of how to live in exile, um, how to to live in a a world around you that is broken and that has fallen, and how to be faithful to your identity um, as a child of God if you're a Christian this morning. And the truth is, here we are in 2020, and believers all over the world live in cultures that are influenced by, the, by that culture's idols, whether it's in the East or in the West. Um, we all um, live in, there's no culture, there's no world culture that is quote-unquote Christian culture, right? There, there's idols and there's sin. This world we live in is broken, and, and as, as long as the fall, since the fall has happened, people have had to live out their faith in ungodly cultures, and we're no different. Um, in our day and age. And if you're a believer in Christ, you are, the Bible says, and First Peter even teaches, a stranger and an alien in the world. In our own culture, we find ourselves many times surrounded by people who are opposed to our faith and values. If you're a Christian. Not everyone, but, but many. We find a pressure in this world to assimilate and become like those around us. To blend in instead of standing out. There's a pressure, a temptation to be anything other than a Christ-following, Bible-believing, gospel-advancing Christian. So, in the words of Francis Schaeffer's book, how then shall we now live? How how do we live in the midst of this broken world? How do we live unshakable lives in an unsteady culture? Undergoing cultural earthquake after earthquake after earthquake. And believers face a very real temptation. And that's what we're going to talk about here in our first week is this temptation to kind of like forget who we are and to live differently than our core identity as followers of Christ. We see in today's passage in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his three friends, they knew who they were, right? They—they they Their identity is very solid. They knew who they belonged to. They, they knew what it meant to be um, people of God and, and that their identity was ro- rooted in their relationship to God. And we're going to see that lived out here in Daniel 1. And, you know, so we're going to see as as believers an example to kind of follow. That's one of the things we're going to see. We're also going to see a a bigger story here of how God is at work even in the midst of this. And if you're here today and you say, well, I'm not a Christian or I'm not sure where I'm at and all that, you're going to see here um, how you can have an identity in the midst of unstable and an unsteady world that we all live in, how you can have an identity that is rooted and that is solid. Uh, All of this can be unpacked right here in Daniel chapter 1. So here's what we're going to do. We're just going to kind of make our way chunk by chunk through the first chapter, we're going to read the whole chapter but we're going to pause and talk as we go and then I'm going to give you three principles uh, for living out your life, um, living out your identity, excuse me, um, an unshakable identity in the midst of our twisted um, culture. So look with me starting in verse 1, it says uh, here in Daniel chapter 1 verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels and the treasury of his God. Let's pause there and give you the setting of when... and. Where this is taking place, this is the sixth century BC. So this is about six hundred years before the Lord Jesus would have come into the world and been born in a manger, right? And so Babylon here, um, this country, this place you're hearing of that has come and besieged Jerusalem is a wealthy, powerful nation in that day, and they come under the leadership of this king Nebuchadnezzar, and they go and they besiege and take over Jerusalem, which is the capital, if you will, of God's people. And you're living at you're at a time in the Old Testament where God's people weren't just a people, weren't just a community of faith, they were a nation. They had a national identity um, different than what we see today. So all of this is in fulfillment of prophecy. All of what you see happening here is something God said was going to happen. In fact, God's people under the law were warned that if they failed to follow God and obey God's commands, they would be and could be exiled to a foreign nation. That's in Leviticus 26, if you want to look it up sometime. Years earlier, King Hezekiah made the mistake of showing off the treasury, um, uh, his treasury to some Babylonian representatives who had come. This was, I think, about 100 years before this time period. And it was prophesied then that one day the temple treasuries that he had showed them and some of his own descendants would be carried off because he had been so foolish, they would be carried off to Babylon. Well, that's prophesied in 2 Kings 20 and Isaiah 39. And here we are in Daniel 1, and it's happening. And the, you're going to see here not just the treasury, but we're going to see here in just a moment that royal family members are going to be exiled this century later. So look with me at verse 3 They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names, so new names. Daniel, he called Belt Shazar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Ezariah, he called Abednego. Right so these now we've introduced to Daniel's three famous friends and so if you grew up in and around church you've heard the stories of Shadrach Meshach and Abednego you've heard of Daniel and the lions den and you've heard of these guys in the fiery furnace well all these are these stories that are in Daniel that many times we hear in vacation bible school as a kid or Sunday school and and these stories have deep implications for our faith and many times they're so familiar that we we don't spend enough time with them So here at this point in the story, the king decides he's taking the best of the best from Jerusalem, physically, socially, mentally, and he's going to bring them basically into ultimately his service. So he took young people, you'll notice. Daniel, uh, scholars tell us, was probably about 15 years old when this happened. He took from royalty and nobility. He took physically good-looking people. He took smart people. He took competent people, and he began, if you will, to reprogram them. Right? He's trying to wipe the hard drive and start clean. And he is reassimilating them into his culture and his service. So he starts with what? What culture starts with? Literature and language. Think like we do, talk like we do, right? He's he's trying to influence them with the Babylonian culture. And what he's ultimately trying to do is by feeding them from his table, educating them with his school, he's trying to remake them in his image, into a Babylonian image. Notice he even renames them. Replacing their names with Babylonian names. Now, that's interesting because their names um, all had, names were a big deal in the Old Testament and in the Hebrew culture. And so all their names had deep meaning tied to their relationship with God, t- tied to things about God. And he gives them names, they're given names by the eunuch that are, that are tied to false idols of Babylonian culture. So for instance, Daniel's name in Hebrew means God is my judge. Well, he's given the name Belshazzar, which can have a couple of meanings. One is wife of Bel, or old, old lady wife of Bel, or the more popular version, Bel protect the king. Hananiah, his name means Yahweh is gracious. He's given the name Shadrach, which means command of Aku. Um, Aku was the moon god in Babylon. Mishael, who, whose name means who is what God is. In other words, like who is like God, who is what God is. It's a name evoking worship, and he's given the name Meshach, which means who is like Aku, the moon god again. And then Ezariah, whose name means Yahweh is a helper. is given the name Abednego, which means servant of the shining one, which was Nebo, another false god there. So they're given names tied to three idols instead of the names they had tied to the Hebrew god, toward to the god of the Bible, the one true god. And you see this in the Bible many times. Like, for instance, if you go to Genesis and you read the story of Joseph and he gets uh, taken into slavery into Egypt, even when he gets favor with Pharaoh and begins to serve with Pharaoh, he's given an Egyptian name, right? He's given an Egyptian name. E- even in the New Testament at times, you see people have Hebrew names and Greek names. You have um, A lot of people think Saul changed his name to Paul. That's not really what happened. He had, he had, he had, two, he had a Hebrew name, and, he, and he, had a, he had a name for the Roman and Greek culture of that name, Saul and Paul. He just began, became an apostle to the Gentiles. He began to go by his Gentile, more Gentile-friendly name. But we can't miss what's happening here. Right, It's so rich with meaning to look at this and see what they're trying to do in renaming and kind of confusing them by giving them names tied to anything other than the, their God. And it would be critical for Daniel in his time there in Babylon to remember that Baal certainly cannot protect the king, <laughs> but that God certainly is his judge. It would be critical that they remember that, that Yahweh, that God is their helper. And that he's gracious. All those things are critical that they remember, but their names are being changed to mean something totally different. You know, Sinclair Ferguson points out that Nebuchadnezzar used several methods to try and conform them to his culture and his ways. And he lists these methods that you can see unpacked here in this chapter. uh, The first one being isolation. They're taken away from home and, and they're even set apart once they're taken away from home. There's indoctrination into the Babylonian schools and literature and and ways of thought and language. Then there's compromises that put the king's food before them to tempt them with. And then there's confusion with the name change. And all of this is ways to try to begin to influence them and conform them to Babylonian way of thought. Ferguson writes, this incident illustrates for us an important principle. The way we think about God, ourselves, others, and the world determines the way we live. And they certainly knew this. They're trying to change the way. They don't want them thinking about God. They don't want them thinking about themselves as a part of a covenant community. They want to think, get them to think differently so that they will live differently. And Nebuchadnezzar hoped to change all of this so that they would live ultimately the way he wanted. So how would they respond in the midst of this temptation, far away, 900 miles away from Jerusalem, taken out of their homes, away from their parents, how will they respond? Verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So he, he makes a resolute decision that he would not defile himself. That word uh, resolved means to make up or to set your mind. So he, he decided, he set his mind that he would not act in a way that was inconsistent with his identity as part of the people of God. Now it's possible that the food that was set before him and most likely would have contained unclean food. That the law would forbid him from taking it's also most likely that it would have been food that would have been offered to idols and the wine would have been offered and poured out and poured before an idol and things of that nature. And all of this was, it was very compromising for him. He's drawing some lines in the sand saying, you know, I'm in this other place, but I've got to do some things to remember who I am, right? And so I'm not going to sin against God, but I've also just got to, I've got to do some things to show and remind myself that I'm set apart, which was a lot of what the food laws were about in the Old Testament was about reminding God's people that they were distinct from other nations. They were the chosen ones. They were God's people. And the king wanted Daniel to be reminded every day that he was dependent on him for survival. He wanted his daily bread to come from the king's table to create dependence upon the king. And it would have been tempting because, I mean, it's the king's food. I mean, this would have been good food. This would have been the best of the best in this wealthy nation. And Daniel was resolved... To not sin, obviously, by eating what he wasn't allowed to eat, but also to not become dependent upon anyone other than God for his deepest needs. Look at verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigns your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that were, they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So in all this, you're seeing God's at work all through the passage. God gives Daniel favor. He gives him compassion with the one assigned over him. Daniel, you'll notice, politely requests to not eat the food. But the, but the eunuch is afraid of the king. What's going to happen if you don't eat this food and you go eating vegetables and water and, and you look all scrawny and stuff? He's going to know something's up. I'm the one in charge of you. Off with my head here. right? Nebuchadnezzar wasn't really known for being a, a nice, friendly guy. Uh, you know, he, he was a, he was a, a tough guy. So Daniel proposes a test. He's so confident that that God's going to take care of him. He's so confident in this. He says, well, just give us 10 days. And if you don't like what you see, you make adjustments that you want to make. And who would imagine that vegetables and water would turn out to be good for you? I mean, who who would have imagined that? Don't tell the vegetarians. All right, verse 17. And as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. I think it's about the age of 85. He's he's there, 70 years or so, serving in Babylon, even serving Persia when they come in. I mean, it just it, kings change, rulers change, all this stuff changes, but Daniel remains there. And so God blessed them, and they were obedient, and God took care of them. And the story doesn't always end like this story, so I want to pause here and make a, a a point But we don't need to read stories like this and think, oh, okay. So in an ungodly culture, if I honor God, things always ends like, end like this. Like I end up as the right-hand man to the ruler and things go. You know? That's not the way at it all. It's the way it went here, right? Um, sometimes the blessing comes a little much later. Some, 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 sometimes you lose your head, but you spend eternity with Jesus, and it's still good, right? God takes care of us, but sometimes he allows us, you know, sometimes you go into the fiery furnace and, and you burn up. Uh, Sometimes you go into the lion's den and and you get eaten. And so it doesn't always end with a nice bow on it. But but sometimes God does take care of you and protect you and advance you. and, And so all these, sometimes that happens too. The point is, no matter what the end result, we're called to be faithful. We're called to live out our identity as God's people. The point of what's happening here is that God had a plan. The point not is, is not do this and you will certainly be blessed in this life with these things. The point is God's plan will be accomplished and cannot be thwarted. One of the key themes we're going to see throughout Daniel is the sovereignty of God to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. So God had a plan for them. He had a plan to use them in Babylon as a witness and a light. And he had a plan to use Daniel in the government. And God's plan cannot be thwarted. And it's not our job to go about planning for God, <laughs> but to simply be obedient in whatever position he puts us in. And as we step back and we look at the passage, we see God at work all through it. And that's the real story. In this broken situation, God is right in the midst of it, working where the world would least expect him to be at work, in exile. And from this passage, we can see some principles for how we are as God's people, how we can maintain our identity and, and, and live it out in a fallen world, in a world that is constantly shifting towards depravity. How can we live out our identity that's rooted in Christ? So here's three principles taken from this passage. The first one is we need to remember God is not absent, rather he's at work. Uh, No matter what's going on in our culture, no matter what's going on in our world, whether we step back and look at that corporately or personally, we need to always remember God is not absent, rather he's at work. One of the key themes in this passage is the presence of God and the activity of God all the way through it. In fact, how did they end up in the situation? How did they end up in exile? Verse 2 tells us, The Lord gave the king of Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. God wasn't absent. God was at work. He allowed this to happen to accomplish a greater purpose. And God's always working for his people's good and for his own glory. And there's, there's no earthly pain or circumstance that can rob us from God's purpose. Three times in this text we read that God gave. So that's a key. And when it's repeated like that, when you're reading your Bible and you see something repeated, you should know the writer's trying to tell you something. It's a theme. God gave, God gave, God gave. God gave the king of Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. God gave Daniel favor with the eunuch. God gave Daniel and his friends gifts and abilities to help them advance in Babylon. God gave, God gave, God gave. And this passage is shouting to us about the sovereignty of God it's he not nebuchadnezzar who's ultimately in control it's his grace to daniel that enables daniel's good fortune it reminds us no matter the situation that we find ourselves in god is always in control that's a good thing to remember sometimes scary things happen in our world in our culture right when missiles are flying around and political parties are debating and hating each other no matter the culture war no matter the election results god is in control he's in control the throne room of heaven is always occupied by the same person, no matter who occupies the White House or the Senate or the mayor's office or any of those other things. Your Lord does not change no matter what your boss is like. Right? There are certain things that, just, that do not change. God is always in control. And this passage also reminds us of God's presence and activity here because he wasn't just in control. He was, he was at work. <laughs> he was doing stuff. He wasn't just sitting back like, I got this. He was actively at work, blessing and moving and watching and working. And he actually used this situation to discipline his people. Don't miss that. And let this remind you that God's discipline in your life, because he does discipline his children. He allows us to go through trials. He disciplines us sometimes because we sin. He disciplines us to bring us back and to to cause us to repent and to trust him just like a parent disciplines a child. But he also disciplines us kind of like in a training way. He allows us to go through trials because it strengthens our faith. So so don't don't forget this. that God's Let this remind you that God's discipline in your life is not an indication of his absence from your life. Quite the opposite. God doesn't give up on his people. and, And though he disciplines us and allows us to go through trials and suffering, he will not abandon or forsake us. God does not have orphans and he does not ever treat his children like orphans. And it will help you and I to avoid discouragement and compromise in our shifting culture to remember no matter what happens, God is not absent and he's here and he is at work even when we can't see it and we don't necessarily feel it. So don't let your circumstance be a false prophet in your life telling you things that aren't true. And it, because the tempting thing in a world around you that's, that's trying to pull and the cultural current is going away from you is to get away from your identity if you're a child of God as a child of God and a follower of Jesus Christ and begin to compromise. And a key thing to remember to help you not do that is that God is not, has not left you. And he's not absent, but rather he's at work in your life and in the world around you. Maybe where you least expect him to be at work. Secondly, we need to engage culture with wisdom rather than capitulation. Engage culture with wisdom, not capitulation. All through this passage, we see the Babylonian king trying to assimilate these young boys into the Babylonian culture. And there's some assimilation that takes place. They're being put in tempting and pressing situations, though. They are having to try and figure out how do we navigate life in a culture that is hostile to our faith. Because it's only going to get more hostile to their faith later on in the book. How do they engage with this new culture in a way that preserves their identity rather than compromises their identity? And Daniel and the guys, they could have just went all in with the culture. They could have tried and made the God of Israel one God among many in Babylon. They could have acted that way. They could have said, "Well, God understands our situation. This is a new day and a new time." And I mean, our parents and our grandparents—they didn't have to live out their faith in a situation like this. It's different now. Times have changed. Ten Commandments seem kind of archaic, written to a different time and a different culture, not relevant to this one. Or they, they could have said, I, I'm not eating that, that devil's food from the, king's, from the king's, uh, king's table. They could have wagged their finger at the eunuch and said, get thee behind me, Satan, you and your wicked culture, right? And they could have just been, you know, beheaded right there maybe. They, they, could, they could have went to one extreme or the other, but they didn't. See, they could have capitulated to the culture, yelled at the culture or or yelled at the culture, hid from the culture, but they engaged with it in a wise way. They decided to be in it, but not of it. Before Jesus even told them, told us that we're to be in it and not of it. Uh, They learned and they became wise and they even served among the government officials, but they did so in a way that made them distinct and that preserved their faith, and they refused to compromise. They didn't refuse to serve, they didn't refuse to love their neighbor, they didn't refuse to help, they didn't refuse to engage, but they refused to compromise, but they did not refuse to engage. In John 17, verses 14 through 19, Jesus said it this way in his prayer to the Father before he goes to the cross, he prays this for his disciples, he says, I have given them, my disciples, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. But you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. That means set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So here's Jesus' prayer and he's praying that his disciples would not be taken out of this World and the evil culture they were in, but rather protected from Satan that they would live a set apart life. Jesus actually says, I'm sending them into this world. We're to live set apart and sent lives in the world. We must engage the culture, not capitulate to the culture. We're to be in it, but not of it. And then we can't live this way if we don't keep our eyes on the one our identity's in. Right? If we don't know who we are, <laughs> If we don't know who we are and who we belong to, if we don't, if we don't have a real, uh, a real focus to keep our eyes on when everything around us is spinning, then we won't be able to do this. We won't be set apart. I think about it like um, when you see these um, uh, ice skaters, when you watch ice skating on TV, and you, you see, man, they just do all this crazy stuff, right? And they can just, they'll spin around like a dozen times, and they don't fall down, right? And I, and I, I can't even spin around with my kids, you know, uh, more than once or twice, and i got to have a break. But they do something, right? And you know what, y'all know what they do. You see a dancer or you say, I've learned this from my wife. See, I didn't know anything about this. They do something called spotting, right? And so they, they, they have a spot that, that their eyes are always focused on. And that's how, man, they can spin like crazy. And they're like not dizzy when they're done, right? And, and they're still stable and they're still walking around. They don't look drunk. And in, in a similar way for us, in a world where, man, where everything is changing, Everything's moving all the time, and what's, what's good and what's right and what, what's popular and what's not popular and, and what's okay and what's not okay it seems to always be shifting because everything seems to be relevant. We know that's not true, and so we've got to be people. That we, our, our spot is a person, right? It's not just truth. It's a person who embodies truth. It's the Lord Jesus, and unless our eyes are focused on him, we won't be able to engage the culture with wisdom. Unless we're centered on him and his word, we won't be able to engage the culture without capitulating to it. Let me give you some keys to engaging the world wisely. These aren't original with me, but there are three basic ways to engage with the culture that's put before us, right? Everything before us that the culture gives us, there's three basic ways we can engage with it. The first one is we can receive it, right? It's receive, reject, redeem. The first one is we can receive it. There are some things that the culture gives us we just receive, and they're not bad. I don't pray about how to how to engage with the grocery store, right? Should I go to a grocery store? Is it okay to buy my groceries at a grocery store? I just go to the grocery store, right? <laughs> I might need to pray about what to buy at the grocery store, how much we budget for the grocery store, and all those sort of things. But but the grocery store it's fine. Uh, if if I get hurt today and I need to go to the hospital, I don't go. Our hospital's okay. No, that's a good thing our culture has given us. I, I just receive it. Doctors are good, right? Some things we just receive, right? here in a couple months when the government decides to give me three child tax credits i'm not going to pray about that We'll receive it right some things though we reject some things must be rejected in the culture i reject cultural values that are at odds with my biblical values i reject the idea that pornography is a commodity to be consumed and no big deal Right? There's certain things that we can look at and we can say that's sinful or that's evil and that's a broken way and we, and we have to discern those things and, and hold up God's word and we have to be discerning and there's certain things that we just have to reject. Yeah, there's, there's, <laughs> there's no way to receive it. There's no way to transform it. Right? There's not, there, there is, there's not a good and a bad version of it. It's just bad. You just reject it. And then there's certain things we can redeem. Right? They're kind of, sometimes they're neutral things that how we use them determines what they're really like. So for instance... Art is not bad. Some of it is. Entertainment is not evil. But some of it is. I reject certain types of art, and not art as a whole. I, I don't reject entertainment or the arts holistically, but I've got to choose to engage in them in a redemptive way. See, Christians need to be in the business of producing good art and good entertainment. Politics is another one. I don't reject everything about politics. I engage in the political process, but I reject some of the things about it. Some of the divisive things about it in our culture. i got to engage with it in a Christian way, right? So technology. Well, I receive it, but I can't receive it to, be in an, to an unhealthy degree or in a way that, or use it in an unhealthy way. I have to be wise. I have to use it in a redemptive way. See, some things are neutral things that I can use for good or I can use for evil that the culture gives us, and we have choices to make and to use them in a redemptive way not, not an, and, and show people a better way in a fallen world. But everything we're engaged with, we're either receiving it, we're rejecting it, or we're redeeming it. And that's how we engage with the culture, with wisdom. And we've got to be wise enough to know the difference. Somebody that's too liberal in this just receives everything. Somebody that's too legalistic in all this just just rejects everything. And there's got to be wisdom. So to engage the culture wisely is to ask, is this something I can receive? Is this something I must reject? Or is this something I need to use in a redemptive way in some fashion? You know, Jesus said it like this in Matthew 10, 16. He told his disciples as he sent them out, he said, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He said, Listen, it's rough rough areas that I'm sending you out to. People people aren't going to like you very much. It's a a broken, fallen, messed up world. There's wolves everywhere. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And there's a lot of truth to how we engage the culture with that. This world's full of wolves. The question is, are we wise? Are we innocent in the way we engage? Because we have to engage, the, live in it, to, be a, to truly engage the culture in a Christian way, we have to be both wise and innocent. If we maintain our innocence, but we don't engage in the mission God's called us to. If we, if we retreat so much from the world that we can't carry on a conversation because we don't know anyone or anything that's going on, If we were, if we were to live in a commune and section ourselves off to the world, we failed to be salt and light and we will fail to obey the great commission. And our identity as God's people is not just rooted in our purity, in our holiness, but also in our missional purpose. God's people are a people with a mission. And you can both live on mission and be holy. And we must be both. And there's a third principle. A third principle that we can learn from Daniel and his friends is we need to resolve to trust and obey God. we got to be resolute. That no matter what comes, no matter, no, no matter what falls before us, no matter what's presented to us, we're just going to trust God and we're going to obey God. And that's what they do here. They, they make a decision. They draw a line in the sand. I'm not going to defile myself with the king's food. And you can actually see this played out, though, throughout the book. where Time and time and again, they're having to resolve. They're drawing a line in the sand. No, I'm going to keep praying. No, I'm not going to bow to that idol. They just keep going. Yeah, I'm going to tell the truth. You want me to say this, but God has said this. And they decided no matter what, they're going to trust and obey God. God would be their God. They would walk by faith in him and always obey him no matter what. Because at the end of the day, that's what makes us unique and different. We have God's presence with us. And so we have a deep desire to trust him and obey him. And if we don't walk by faith and if we don't walk in obedience, man, we're not living out our identity. As the people of God, and they wouldn't have been living out theirs as the people of God in the Old Testament. In fact, Daniel so trusted God that he we see he proposes that test in verse 12. Let's just let's just do this test. He's just trusting. And when you have made a determined stand to walk with God no matter what's going on around you, there are gonna be times where you have to step out on faith and you have to endure a little test and have to kind of be a little vulnerable and you know, go, I don't know if persecution's gonna come, I don't know if I'm gonna fall flat on my face, I don't know if I'm gonna be made fun of, I don't know if I'm gonna be looked at. Like a weirdo, I just know I've got to trust God and obey God. You know, many times we find ourselves in position, in places, and circumstances, and facing certain temptations that are unnecessary, because unlike Daniel, we just fail to resolve. We just fail to resolve. We don't draw lines in the sand. We draw squiggly lines in the sand. We draw them a little close to the To the ocean so they can be wiped away, you know, every now and then and we can cross over them. I've shared with y'all before, you know, I'm not a thrill seeker. And I don't know ultimately how I'm going to go, but I can tell you this. There's this thing on I-4 when you go down as you drive towards I-Drive and towards the parks. And it's about 15 or 20 stories in the air. And it's a big stick. And people sit in swing sets on it. And I don't know, it looks like it's going... 30 mile an hour, I don't know. It's just slinging them around like hundreds of feet in the air. And I don't know how I'm going to die, but that ain't going to be it. I can tell you that, right? And so you know, because it, it's, I, you know, one little thing breaks off that. They're going to find them people in Lake, Lake, Lakeland, right? And so if you hear that that's how Pastor Josh went, you'll know I was kidnapped, drugged, placed on that thing. That ain't how I went. Because I've, I've made a resolute decision. There are some things I'll do. There's certain roller coasters I'll ride. They'll say, I ain't doing that. Right? No way I'm doing that. We and Christy have the, 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 the discussion sometimes when we drive back. How much money would it take to get you on that thing? I'm like, no. <laughs> right? Anyway, you got to make decisions. But here's the thing. We, we do it about certain things, right? We, we, we draw lines in the sand all the time, and there are certain things in your life that you have not done because you just decided I'm not going to do it. But it's not just about that. There's also, we got to make some decisions of some things we're going to do. It's not just about the negative. It's about the positive, what kind of people we're going to be, right? I can read my Bible on a fairly regular basis if I just decide to, right? I might have to decide to do some things else less. I can pray if I decide to, right? I can, I can share my faith with my neighbor if I decide to. Uh, we, we are creatures that make decisions, and, and God wants those decisions to glorify him, and this culture is constantly shifting. Who we are does not change, but if we're not careful and if we don't make and draw some lines in the sand, we'll find ourselves being something living out an identity totally different than who we say we are in Christ. And here's the thing you and I cannot trust and obey God if we don't choose to live by faith. And as I said earlier, if our eyes focused on the one that Daniel and his friends point us to. You see, all through Daniel, he's pointing us to Jesus, because that's what the Old Testament does. And Daniel and his friends are no different in chapter 1. They're pointing us to Jesus. God is the hero of this story, not Daniel. Daniel and his friends point us to a greater Daniel. 600 years later that would come, right, the Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel Aiken, Dr. Daniel Aiken says it better than I can. Let me read to you. So pardon me while I read this quote, but it's great. Quote, like Daniel and his friends... The Son of God would leave his home and willingly embrace a sinful world without defiling himself even once. Like these Hebrew boys, he would find favor with God and man. Jesus refused to compromise when he faced the emperor behind the emperor, Satan. Christ took the judgment faithless Israel deserved at the hands of another pagan empire, but he walked away from death to outlast the Roman Empire and every empire to come. Aiken goes on to point out that while Daniel and his friends bore faithful witness and lived like they did in their culture, Jesus bore faithful witness and died. (laughs) That's the incredible thing. Daniel bears faithful witness, lives. Son of God bears faithful witness and dies, but that through his death and through his resurrection, we can all live forever with the king of kings in an eternal kingdom that will not change and will not shake beneath our feet. Let me ask you, do you do you know the Lord Jesus? Like in a life-changing, transforming, the way you see the world kind of way. Not in a, I go to church sometimes, I pray sometimes, I go through the, but like, do you have a, a real relationship with the one this story points us towards? Have you trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, believing he died in your place for your sin and rose again? Have you had your identity as a person transformed from from, hey, I'm made in the God, God's image, but I'm broken and sinful. To, hey, I'm made in God's image, and I'm broken and sinful, but I'm being renewed and transformed because I'm a child of God. I'm a follower of Jesus. Has your, has your identity been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, he, that's how you can have an identity. When the world around you goes to hell in a handbasket, you can know who you are and whose you are through faith in Christ. And as a believer this morning, how do you gain balance in this crazy world where things are always shifting, right? Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And we need to remember that if we're gonna live out our identity as Christ followers, we've gotta look at the broken world around us and know that even when things are bad, even when bad things happen in my life, even when bad things happen in culture, even when I don't understand certain things, God's in control, he's present, he's active, he's working, he's sovereign, and he might be working in a way that I would even least expect. He might be working in a situation that I would even least expect. And we need to know we need to know that I need to engage with this culture in a way that's wise and not foolish. And in a way in a way that shows that I'm not capitulating to it but in a way that also shows that I'm not I'm not going to be a hermit. And I need to resolve that no matter what I'm going to walk by faith. I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey God. Let's pray.